speak to us. Thank you. And actually, oh look, I have uh, amplification. <laughs> I'm really excited to be here. Um, we're going to be talking tonight about Isaiah 58. We're going to be looking at uh, the question of race and reconciliation through the framework of Isaiah 68. And what does it mean to really worship, actually? Um, we're going to be asking the question of um, restitution and reparation. We're going to go there tonight. And we're going to do it, again, from a Bible-rooted perspective. Like, look, what does the scripture actually say? A couple of years ago, I took a trip, and, and also we're going to do this through uh, the lens of a trip I took to South Africa. Because I think sometimes it's easier for us to see ourselves when we see other people, and then we can see ourselves through. So we're going to go there first, then we're going to pull back, and we're going to look here. I took a trip a few years ago to South Africa, and a friend of mine had invited me for a five-day consultation, um, and uh, her name is Renee August. She might be watching right now. Hello, Renee, um, <laughs> online. Um, but she's amazing. She has friends who are faith leaders around the world, and she invited 60 faith leaders of color to spend five days on Robben Island to really kind of wrestle through two major questions. The first question was, what is the relationship between justice and forgiveness? And the second is the question of, uh, of what do we mean when we, when we talk about, um, well, what, what is the state of post-colonized people around the world? So what is the state of post-colonized people and what's the relationship between justice and forgiveness? So it was my very first time in Africa. I'd never been to Africa before. I'm an African-American, and so that's like our motherland. And so when I got off the plane, I was very surprised that it didn't feel like Africa. It felt actually a lot more like Europe. So wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, but you know, went to church, a vineyard church, which was something I could do down the block from where I am in, in uh, DC. And, um, and, and after church, my hosts, got me into the back of a, of a, of a car, a little, little hoopty car, and said, we're going to take you on a tour because you can't go to Robben Island and be thinking all these big thoughts without actually seeing the land itself. The land tells the story. So the land tells the story. We jump in the car, and they drive first past District 6. So anybody here familiar with the land there? So District 6 was this area in 1966 where they actually um, had passed a law that made the land a whites-only district. Now this had been the place where, um, where the Malay people and also the quote colored, it was actually um, the place where the Malay people and Indian and others had come in and lived. That's where they were enslaved and lived when they were enslaved long, long before that and had grown up now. This is just their area. Well, in 1966, they declared it a whites-only area, and they went and banged on people's doors and dragged them out of their homes and put them on the back of pickup trucks and drove them to the, quote, colored township. And so then we got back in the car, because we got out, we were looking at it. Right now, District 6 is just this 
area, at least the part that I saw, it's, a, it's like raised to the ground because the international community raised up an ire and said, you can't do this. You can't do this. So they never finished the product, the project. But they also never let anybody move back. So to this day, it's like desolate land. Now we got back in the car, we kept driving around, and then we went up to Camps Bay. And Camps Bay is this beautiful, I mean, lush area. I mean, green just shooting from the ground. I mean, trees and grass. And then you look down the mountainside, and you can see ocean and bay. And I mean, it's just blue and green, and it's just beautiful. Life springing from the earth. And we went through the mountainside, and you could see that people, first of all, I was blown away because every single home had razor wire around it, around the tops, every single home. This was not like a gated community. These were gated houses, gated homes. And with razor wire, the first thing that went through my head is, well, who, who is in prison here, right? And I asked, what's going on with this? And they said, well, Cape Town happens to be one of the most inequitable cities on the planet. And I understood what that meant. You see, violence doesn't follow poverty. Violence follows inequity. The higher the inequity in a city or a town or a state or a place, the higher the level of violence will be. Hence, in the most inequitable city on the planet, you have razor wire around every home. So we get back in the car and we drive for a while and now there's actually this big brush. Like there's literally nothing for a long time. And then there's the airport and then we'd keep driving and there's like brush and they said, look at this. This is, this is telling a story. This is how they did apartheid. They did apartheid through the land. They actually created huge swaths of nothing that made it this was how they kept the people apart. But don't miss it, don't miss it, it's coming up. So I'm like, what, what, what? And then boom, here's the colored township. The colored township is all cement. Like very, very few trees, hardly any grass. But the people have actually created more color because they've literally painted their homes different colors. So that's, that's where the color comes from, in the colored township. The town, of course, colored means mixed, mixed race or Malay. So we kept driving, and again, another long swath of nothing. I mean nothing, like as in nothing. And then there it was, the black township. And the thing that struck me most about the black township was that it had porta potties lining the roads. And they were excited. They said, we, you know, everybody's really excited because the black township finally got porta potties. Now, this was two years ago. This was 22 years after the fall of apartheid. And the black townships had finally gotten porta potties. Did you catch that? There's no running water, there's no electricity. The, although they have jerry-rigged some electric, like there's literally a, like a, a canopy of, of wires that hang over the black township. People have jerry-rigged their own electricity. The porta potties is the place where the girls now are taken to be raped. Because everybody's living on top of each other. And there is really no sanitation. 
In fact, it's a really big thing they're pushing for right now is some kind of public sanitation. So we're driving home now, and all I could think was, how does a Christian live in this? How does somebody who follows Jesus live in this level of inequity every single day? How do you deal with it cognitively? How do you deal with the cognitive dissonance that must, must hit you? And all I could think was one of two ways. One, you fight it. Like, you have to fight it. You have to become a freedom fighter. You have to become somebody whose life is dedicated to fighting apartheid and even post-apartheid apartheid, the living apart, even post the system. You have to fight it or you have to adopt a theology that has nothing to do with it. And that's exactly how they've done it. It's exactly how they've done it. So the, co the text that we're in today is Isaiah 58. And I actually think that the people of, of Jerusalem at this time, the people, the Hebrew people, were actually in very much a similar situation where they were having to deal with the cognitive dissonance of the inequity in their society, of the injustice in their society, and what we see is we see God responding to them in Isaiah 58. And this is what the text says. It says, shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they are a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask me, ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interests on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast I choose, the day to humble oneself, uh, to bow one, one's head down like a bulrush, to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice? to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share the bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them? Do not hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if, you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then 
Your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called repairers of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. So in this text, we see the condition of the people. In this text, we see, just even in verse 2, we see that in this context, this context which is actually around just before the Assyrian siege of the northern kingdom and the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, we see this, the state of the people is that they are seeking God and delighting to know God's ways as if. So that's important, that as if is a logical connector. It connects two pieces of logic, A as if B, right? So A, seeking God, delighting to know God's ways as if B, as if they practiced righteousness. So we know, we don't, we don't now, they're not practicing righteousness as if they didn't forsake the ordinances of God. We know now they are forsaking the ordinances of God. And we see in the text that they're living one way inside the church and another way in daily life. Another way to put it is that they have separated out their relationship with God from their relationship to the vulnerable, to the least of these, as Jesus would call you know, if you had like a two lists, a list that had their relationship with God on one side and the relationship with, um, with the least of these on the other, it would look like this. The, the relationship with God, they are fasting. They are uh, earnestly, uh, they have the appearance, the earnest appearance of a desire for God. Um, it looks like delighting to know God's ways and even seeking God. But on the side of the least of these, it looks like this. It looks like serving their own interests. So isn't that something? They're doing good, at least it looks like it, but they're ser they really are serving their own interests. Anybody know any? Ever experienced that? They are oppressing their workers. They are quarreling and fighting. They are allowing the hungry to stay hungry, allowing the homeless to stay homeless, allowing those who have been stripped to remain naked and vulnerable, even allowing their kin who are in distress to remain in distress. My favorite two are these. They're pointing the finger. What is that? What does it mean they're pointing the finger? Well, it actually means they are deflecting responsibility. They're saying, not me, it's their fault, it's their fault. That sounds familiar. And then the last one, they're speaking of evil. They're speaking of evil. Now, I'm speaking of evil, so what's wrong with speaking of evil? We, we got to speak of evil in order to do something about evil. But this actually is the word aven, and it actually means to exert oneself in vain. So really what they're doing is they're talk, 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 talking about injustice. Talk, 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 talking about injustice. Talk, 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 talk about injustice, but never doing justice. 
So I'm on Robin Island. It's the first day, and our group is broken into several smaller groups. And my group ends up going to the, li the lime quarry first in our walking pilgrimage around the island. And it struck me that the lime quarry was a place of deep dehumanization. And it also struck me that the anti-apartheid movement was not just anti-apartheid, it was anti-dehumanization. That that's what it was. It was a resistance movement resisting dehumanization. And what do we know? We know that in Genesis 1, 26, it, we are told that all humanity is made in the image of God. That what it means to be made in the image of God is in the next breath, all humanity is given dominion, said exercise dominion. So to be made in the image of God is actually to hold the inherent dignity of a king or a queen. And to be made in the image of God is to be created with the call and the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise stewardship of the world. You see a picture of dominion even better in Genesis 2, where you take, God takes the human and places the human in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it. And the words till and keep, when you translate them, means serve and protect. So what it looks like to exercise dominion is to serve the wellness of all the relatedness in creation, to serve the, 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 the relatedness, the, the overwhelming relatedness, actually, as God says at the very end of that, of that text when God says everything was very good. That very good was talking about the relationships between things. So what it means to be human is to be created with the call and capacity to exercise dominion, but we have fashioned our world in a way that has said that some people are created to exercise dominion and others are created to be ruled. And that was the sin of apartheid. And that is the sin of colonization around the world. And that is the sin right here in Australia. We're going to hear from our sister Brooke and she's going to share with us even more particularly about the sin ab against um, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait and South Sea Islander people here um, by the colonizers of this land. Consider this. When, when God, when the people placed images of their king around the kingdom, those images were supposed to be a marker of where that king ruled. If that image flourished, then it was supposed to be a marker of where the king flourished. If we are all made in the image of God, if Torres Strait Islander people are made in the image of God, if Aboriginal people are made in the image of God, if South Sea Islander people are made in the image of God, then where their image, where the image of God in them flourishes, it too is a marker of where God rules and that that kingdom is flourishing but where it is crushed, it is also a marker of where there is war against that kingdom happening. So what if when we governed, what if when the colonizers came, they were actually waging war against God? What if in the governance since then, in the lack of a treaty, in the lack of acknowledgement of sovereignty, in all of the ways that services are withheld, in all of the ways that sovereignty is withheld, 
What if the things, the ways that we shape the world are actually warring for supremacy against God? If that is the case, then repentance is needed. In South Africa, as I was walking away from Mandela's cell, it struck me that, you know, forgiveness was offered. Mandela offered forgiveness to the white South Afrikaners, and they were very grateful. When I was there, I heard it all the time. I heard from white South Afrikaners, we are so grateful. And then they would say, let's go, have, let's go get a latte, <laughs> you know? They accepted that. They accepted the forgiveness as if it was for their sake. But it wasn't for their sake. Desmond Tutu has written about this since then. Mandela wrote about this. It wasn't for their sake. It was for the sake of the black South Afrikaners, South Africans. It was for their sake because to forgive is to cut the tie with your oppressor so that you no longer need them. You now need to go directly to God, the source, the only one who can actually fill the debt. And then you go to them, you go to God and say, you must fill the debt. And God actually can. But if forgiveness was not for the sake of the white South Africans, what is? What's the prophetic message to them? Well, I really think it's, it's repentance. It's that simple. Repentance is for the sake of the white South Africans. It's the prophetic message for life, for the white South Africans to get life. I was walking away from Mandela's cell and I was walking with a young man named Nkosi, and I'll, I'll close here. Nkosi, I asked um, if he, what, what do you think about this, this notion of repentance being the message to white South Africans? Nkosi came onto the island mad, just really, really mad, like angry. He was really one of those, he's one of those younger people who was ready to bear arms because how could it be that 22 years has passed and we still only have porta-potties? And I asked Nkosi, I said, Nkosi, what would it take? What would repentance require? He was walking and before his right foot hit the ground, he said restitution. And all I could think was, well, you know, we have another R word that we avoid in the United States is called reparation. We don't go there, but this is a biblical concept. Restitution means to restore what was taken. Repa reparation means to repair what was broken. And you see, the constructs of race is the MO, it's the modus operandi of colonization. It was the way to divide and conquer. Starts with Plato back in 360 BC, flash forward to Aristotle and you get Western supremacy, <coughs> flash forward to the Pope in the 10 hundreds and you get terra nullius, flash forward to the Pope Nicholas V and 1454 and you get you get the doctrine of discovery flash forward to Carl Linnaeus the botanist in 1746 and you get the hierarchy of human being that is color-based now and on the top you have white Europeanus how's that for a scientific classification 
And then under them, you, under the white Europeanus, you get red Americanus. And then under him, under her, yeah, and they are all men, by the way. And then under him, you get yellow Asiatus. And on the bottom, you get black Africanus. This is the beginning of bad science. And it did not take long in the United States. It only took 41 years to go from Carl Linnaeus to the Three-Fifths Compromise, where now we are now embedding these racial categorizations into law. Law. So it's not just an idea, it's not just a philosophy, it's not just a theology, it's not just a science, it's now law that shapes the course of whole families' lives, whole people groups' lives, shapes society. And for the next century in the United States, you have people trying to enter into the United States and literally taking their case all the way to the Supreme Court, trying to fight to be recognized as white. Why? Who wouldn't want to be white? Who doesn't want to be human? To be, to be white meant to be human. It meant to have the right to become a naturalized citizen, according to the 1790 Immigration Act in the US. To be white meant that you had the ability to own land, to have a business, to exercise dominion. So it really meant you were human. And every immigrant that came in after that had to find their place on that scale between whiteness and blackness. They'd never fully be white if they had any kind of melanin in their skin. But they didn't have to be black, which was to be non-human. And I was amazed when I first came here and I heard that, that while it may not be on your census, that there is a categorization of black within the Aboriginal people and, and South Sea Islander people. That blew my mind, because there's no connection to Africa that I know of, but yet they're still considered black. Well, that's because blackness and whiteness has nothing to do with geography or family story. It has to do with one thing. Race was created to do one thing, to decide who was divinely called to exercise dominion on land. That's it. So the construct itself tells a lie. Because we know from Genesis 1 that all humanity was created to exercise dominion over the land. So... This is the rising conversation in South Africa and the U.S., and I imagine here, too. It will be if it's not already. Because, you see, South Africa got its ideas from the United States and Australia. It got apartheid from the United States and Australia. In 22 years out from colonization, they're just getting porta-potties. The U.S. is only 50 years out from its colonization. If you think about the, black col the colonization of black people and the lifting of it finally being the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, here in Australia, you might look at the Reformation in 1967 to be the time where finally there was some lifting of the colonization here, but it's not full, it's not complete by a long shot. So maybe you might even see the Aboriginal people here as still being colonized. In other words, not only are they being colonized, but the colonizers are still colonizing 
Do you see? The act is still in the act. All of these places have structures of colonization. All of these places have de facto economic apartheid. All of these places resolve the cognitive dissonance by building compassionate ministries and charities that give a little bit but never really fully go to the root of the problem in order to solve it forever. So what would it look like? What would repentance look like? What would it require? According to the text, it would look like undoing the thongs of the yoke. It would look like breaking every yoke. It would look like speaking and doing justice. It would look like satisfying the needs of the afflicted. It might look like redistributing some of that health care over to the Aboriginal peoples. Redistributing some of that welcome to refugees and immigrants with brown skin. Redistributing some of the interactions with police and the justice system to people who are white or from European descent. And the result would be our healing would spring forth. Our light would break forth. Our ancient ruins would be rebuilt. Our foundations of many generations would be raised up. And then, and only then, could we be called repairers of the breach. Amen. Thanks, Lisa. Um, well, I think thank you. Mm. We need to hear it. It's hard to hear, um, but we need to hear it. Uh, first book's going to come and respond and uh, maybe mm. draw us a bit more into uh, the context here in Australia and then we will have a conversation between the okay. two. Thanks, Paul. Well, thank you, Lisa. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a privilege to be able to respond to you tonight and uh, uh, with all of you to start a conversation uh, that's, you know, a conversation 230 years at least in the waiting. And I think the time in Australia is now for us to have these deeper conversations. Um, so it's exciting to be here as part of Peace Talks to do that. Uh, thank you, Larissa, for your acknowledgement. Uh, as a Waka Waka woman, uh, as an Aboriginal person, the, I'm a visitor to these lands, so it's important that I also acknowledge uh, the Gadigal peoples of the Aurora Nation. Uh, as the traditional custodians of this land on which we gather and meet and yarn and pay my respects to their elders and leaders past, present and future uh, and also acknowledge Aunty Jean Phillips, one of our most senior Aboriginal Christian leaders in Australia. Wow, rep uh, repentance, racism and reconciliation and particularly in the Australian context. Uh, Lisa has taken us on a journey tonight, a journey um, sort of starting in South Africa and around the world as we look at the impacts of colonisation. Uh, one of the things I say, uh, fascinated with this term post-colonial, uh, because 2018 Australia still seems like colonial and colonisation uh, that we live each and every day. 
And so uh, I've said with Jeff before that post-colonial is an academic aspiration, not a reality. And so I thought I would start first with my own journey to South Africa. Uh, and it's hard when you have over 65,000 years, uh, over 2,000 generations of story in this place, but we'll get there. But let's go to South Africa first. And so uh, I guess this is one of the other uh, opportunities of breaking racism down in Australia. Uh, I was interested in theological study in 2012 and I'd just gone to our very first grass tree gathering where Aunty Jean Phillips and Uncle Ray Minicon and some others brought Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Christian leaders together from all across Australia. Uh, something that we hadn't seen in many, many years. Uh, and it was Aunty Jean's vision um, with the help of those other Aboriginal Christian leaders. And I'd just come back from Grass Tree all fired up at a, as I'd met my Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Christian brothers and sisters, leaders around this country. I went to a theological college to think about studying there. I met the vice principal, it was an information night. And he says, I said to him, I'm very passionate about Aboriginal Christian leadership development. And, he said, and then I said, are there any Aboriginal students studying here? And he says, oh no, studying doesn't fit with their culture. We can't keep them seated at a desk and they go walk about. And so I didn't study at that theological college. Um, I have since still built relationship and uh, spoken about that and uh, we've talked about it, but it took a long time. But part of why that's part of this South Africa journey, Reverend Jeff, uh, Dr. Jeff Broughton uh, reached out to Uncle Ray and I, Uncle Ray was too busy and said, I'm going to the Global Network of Public Theology Conference in South Africa. Would you like to co-write a paper with me? And I said, well, I've never done that, but sure, I'll give it a go. And uh, so we went to South Africa and we went to District 6, uh, Jeff and Mai's paper, which hopefully will get published soon, two chapters, uh, Reconciliation Without Repentance and the Postponement of Indigenous Justice in Australia and Recognition Without Dignity and the Postponement of Indigenous Justice in Australia. And I think for me, both concepts that uh, Lisa has talked about. So we were talking about how reconciliation and recognition in this country has been used in the political, and that has led to the postponement of justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But when we look at the theological, there is hope for healing and uh, restitution and restoration. But when we went to South Africa in the District 6 uh, Museum, I was struck by an acknowledgement plaque that they had on the wall. And uh, here at this church, there's an acknowledgement to country plaque. And whilst this wasn't an acknowledgement to country, I found it fascinating as I thought about how we acknowledge country in Australia. And the words on the plaque at the District 6 Museum say this, all who pass by, remember with shame the many thousands of people who lived for generations in District 6 and other parts of this city and were forced by law to leave their homes because of the colour of their skins. But it goes further. Father, forgive us. So in Australia, I think we have this interesting thing that we're now okay to acknowledge country, or are we? There's still many churches that refuse to even take that first step of acknowledgement of country. But can we go as far as District 6? And for the colonizers, the invaders, the settlers, we still haven't had that conversation here in Australia with grace and respect and truth and time. Can we go as far for the colonizers to say, Father, forgive us? 
as we look at that map that the University of Newcastle has prepared, the map of massacres uh, in Australia that isn't even complete. Genocide occurred on these lands. We think and we go to the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act of 1897. This was the Queensland legislation that created uh, the forced removal of Aboriginal peoples from their lands and placed Aboriginal peoples on missions and reserves. It's called the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act 1897. Who's ever read that act or knows about that act? And there's two people in this room, and one in particular, Annie Jean, who had to live through the reality of what that act meant. Because Sherberg Mission was part of that act. And the reason um, that it's significant to Queensland is because Queensland was the state containing the highest surviving number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And Lisa referred to uh, Australia's connection to South Africa and apartheid. The South African government wrote to the Premier of Queensland and requested this particular piece of legislation. And so uh, the Queensland Premier sent that to South Africa and that was part of the basis of the apartheid legislation because it wasn't just one piece of legislation, there were many legislations. And that's a little known fact here in Australia but also in South Africa. But you can go and you find the letter that was written um, uh, is there. And so we remember that pre-colonisation, there were over a million Aboriginal peoples in this land that we now call Australia, over 300 nations. You could look at that map of Aboriginal Australia as one of the most sophisticated civilizations on this planet. 300 nations coexisting in one land, uh, living in peace and harmony. That doesn't mean without conflict. Uh, but a time before Australia even needed a word like reconciliation. And what could have been learnt from that ancient uh, but living civilization? And that's when we start to dig into Genesis 1 and our dreaming. There's no English word to correctly uh, articulate what the dreaming is. It's a whole system of law and living. And for us, that system is given by the Creator to our peoples. Uh, but the Christian missionaries that came couldn't see the creator in our stories, but we could, and we still can. Uh, and that's, I guess, a call to the church and the theological colleges today. And so when we think about Australia in 2018, um, and as we think about the impacts of colonisation, of race, of uh, inequality, inequity, of disadvantage, but it's not disadvantage. We have to look at the systems. That's where Lisa has called us to look at Australia tonight, to the systems that were created in colonisation and exist today. There was the John Pilger documentary, Utopia. And this nation has a fascination with playing with people's minds, with the way that we use words and language. You think of the Aboriginal's protection and restriction of the sale of opium acts. Protection was a government policy. That wasn't to protect us. That was to protect European interests as they stole the land and they're still stealing the land today as it's given to mining corporations to create even more wealth that doesn't come to the original custodians of this land. It goes into the back pockets of about probably a handful of people in Australia. 
And so we think of John Pilger's documentary, Utopia. Uh, and Utopia is not the concept of utopia most people would be um, familiar with, but a township named Utopia in the Northern Territory. And Utopia does not have housing for its people. There is not running water. There is not uh, e equality, equity. Uh, the Aboriginal people there live in third world conditions. And it's not just utopia. This is our capital cities as well. If you come and take a walk with Aunty Jean or I around southeast Queensland and visit communities like Logan, Ipswich, uh, you know, I helped one family in particular in Ipswich who had not had a working oven for 18 months. There was no carpet on the floors. This is 30 minutes from Brisbane. And it happens in Brisbane as well. It would happen here in Sydney, probably in places like Mount Druitt. And so we have to look at our Australia today. And I'm grateful for Lisa as someone who's come across the seas to speak to us. But when will we listen to the people of this land? When will we listen to Aboriginal peoples? How do we create the spaces um, for people to listen to us? And, uh, you know, Auntie Jean um, has been calling Christians for decades to come and listen, to create these opportunities. We don't have the church building to be able to use. Um, and so when we think about restitution, uh, that can be a starting point, but it must go much deeper than that. And so this Saturday, we have a gracious conversation uh, and we're thankful to Northside Baptist for hosting us and you're very welcome to come uh, and be part of that conversation. And so, uh, you know, as we think about this, uh, also the Aboriginals Protection and Restriction um, of the Sale of Opium Act, what it meant was that we became state wards. Aboriginal people became state wards. Lisa referred to the 1967 referendum. Uh, citizenship was gained in 63-64, uh, but then full citizenship comes with being counted in the census, which was 67, and then I think it was a few years after before a census actually took place. But we were stripped of all of our civil and human rights. Uh, to be placed on those reserves meant uh, you were not able to move freely. You could not marry freely. Uh, boundary streets that are created in many of the cities were the boundaries um, used uh, to maintain and control Aboriginal people that restricted our freedom to move. And this isn't ancient history, this isn't colonial history, although we're still colonial Australia. This is the 1960s, the 1970s, uh, and we can still look at today where, you know, we get into a taxi, an Uber, and we have to explain to people that we don't get free houses, we don't get free land, and we're not believed. Lisa talked about our justice systems, and I remember the exact day that I stopped calling the Australian justice system the justice system, because there was no justice for my peoples. When a 16-year-old girl, a 16-and-a-half-year-old girl, Aboriginal girl in Queensland, can nearly go to adult prison um, because she simply picked up a permanent marker and tagged the roof, of a building, that that can send her to adult prison. The justice system is broken in this land. When we look at the Guardian's extensive report, um, deaths inside and Aboriginal deaths in custody, Aboriginal people, we don't need to look at that report because we live it every day. We know who our people are who have died in custody, many of them on remand, meaning they've never even been sentenced and they're dying in custody. 
We think of David Dungai Jr.'s uh, coronial inquest. The family waited three years for that coronial inquest. And within the week that it started, it was immediately postponed. He had five corrections officers on him. And they were called because he ate biscuits, Arnott's sweet biscuits. Uh, and uh, he told them 12 times that I can't breathe. 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 It's how we feel in Australia today. But this was his physical breath. And they didn't believe him. The constructs of race are real in this country and in this nation. We are not believed. Your Aboriginal Christian leaders are not believed. We can tell these stories in churches and still people will come up to us and say, we don't believe you. We're your Christian brothers and sisters. We believe in truth and justice and healing. Uh, we don't want to make stuff up. And this is how the construct of race still operates in our land. And so Lisa took us, uh, and I guess as I just uh, come out of the Aborigines Protection Act, state wards, but that was actually for slavery. Aboriginal children at the age of 10 sent out, if you're a female, as a domestic servant, as a male, as a farmhand. You worked your whole life for nothing. No money. For stolen wages. And what we need as we start conversations you need to go and research what the stolen wages are. Dr. Rosalind Kidd's work is stolen wages. So you can have a conversation with your own friends and family and church and pastor to tell them about the stolen wages once you know what that is. But there was slavery in this land. I'll never forget going to Port Arthur in Tasmania. And I saw a timeline um, and it included like uh, when the British ended um, uh, enslavement and slavery. But Australia was still a British colony at that time, and Aboriginal people were being enslaved. So Britain and England didn't abolish slavery then, because it was still occurring in one of their colonies here in Australia. Well, many colonies as we think about what we now know as the states. And so it's the way that things mess with your mind. This word reconciliation in Australia, and I've said sometimes I like the word and other times I hate it. The reason I like the word is it's often been my opportunity to come into churches because it's a safe word. It's an easy word. But for us, reconciliation is hard. But when we talk about reconciliation, um, it's about the repair of a relationship, the coming together, we use it for coming together of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal peoples. But has that relationship ever actually been there? And so that's when we talk about conciliation. And many Aboriginal Christian leaders are talking about conciliation. And it goes back to our colonial times. In King George's instructions to Arthur Phillips, it said, you will conciliate the affections of the native peoples, showing them kindness and amity. In 2018, we're still asking the colonizers to show us kindness and amity, including within the church. And so it makes me, it draws me to a bit further in Isaiah and um, uh, Lisa actually uh, went there without, I think, actually naming the verse. Uh, but we looked at Isaiah 58, and I tell us to look at Isaiah 61, uh, and all of the beginning of Isaiah 61, but especially verses 3 and 4, which is the foundational verse for the grass tree gathering. They will be called trees of justice, planted by the Lord to honour his name. Then they will rebuild cities that have been in ruins for many generations. 
and we have cared for this land on behalf of the Creator for over 65,000 years. At that point of colonization, and as I speak here in Sydney, uh, in 1770, as Cook came ashore at Kernel, and if you've never been to that site at Kernel and Cooks are blissed, uh, you go there and you pray and you think about the true history and how that history has affected our present. And there at Kernel, uh, we talked about humanity and we talk about recognition and dignity and, uh, uh, um, and in the image of God. With Cook on first seeing Aboriginal peoples, at first he saw women and children. They ran up the cliff and two men, Aboriginal men, stayed there. And on first seeing these men, humans, Cook shot at them twice. And so in that instance, our human dignity was denied. In that very instance, at the point of a significant part of history in the east coast of Australia and greater um, Australia. And so uh, there's many other things that we could say. We also have to think um, about Aboriginal peoples of over 300 nations, Torres Strait Islander peoples, over 100 islands in the Torres Strait, a very small geographical area, um, and uh, 18 of those uh, islands are inhabited. And then the South Sea Islanders, uh, who aren't Indigenous peoples, but each of these peoples have their own history in this land. South Sea Islanders uh, were exactly what people imagine as slaves. And, and that's exactly their history, and it's an important other history to tell. And then Torres Strait Islander peoples, uh, you know, they celebrate the coming of the light, a very positive interaction with the missionaries. Uh, and so that's celebrated. And they actually, Torres Strait Islanders make up about 6% of the total Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population of Australia. Um, and so it's important that people understand the differences in our cultures as well. And so, uh, I guess to bring all of this together, uh, and in Genesis 1, and as we connect that with our dreaming, our stories of the creator, of creation, of how to live in right relationship, uh, and if you've read my reflection with Common Grace that came out um, on Sunday, uh, for us, um, there is no separation between human and non-human in the Indigenous worldview. So that's the animal, the tree, the plant, the bird, uh, are all precious creatures of God's wondrous and beautiful creation. And we're all in relationship together. We're all connected. And Lisa talked about that tonight. But that's how we have lived for over 65,000 years. And so... Uh, where I wanted to close with is if we think about Australia today, I've often said that as Aboriginal peoples, we are already kneeling at the cross. Many of us wake up every morning and we pray for our nation. We pray for love and healing and hope. We pray for a breaking of the injustice, uh, past injustice that has affected our present and today's injustices that still occur, where people not uh, need to listen but to speak and to act, to respond to these injustices. And so uh, we think about 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, that's all of us here tonight, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and will heal their land. Jesus has been waiting for over 230 years for the establishment of a relationship that he knows is a right relationship. Aboriginal peoples have been waiting for that long to see a relationship. We ask that people think about repentance, restitution, and then maybe we can have restoration in Australia in 2018. And let's not hope that it's more than a decade or a century to go. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Brooke. So while Brooke and Lisa come up, and just while Brooke catches her breath, um, I might make a comment that will lead into my first question for you, then I'll let you guys just go for it and I'll get out of the way. Um, but we've heard the call to repentance. And I guess just to unpack that, part of that is the truth-telling or confessing. And we've heard the truth tonight, and that's what the uh, statement of the heart called for as well, the truth-telling before the maharatha, the coming together. And so an important, although often difficult part, is hearing the truth you've both spoken to. So thank you for telling us the truth, because that's part of what repentance is about, is hearing and then confessing what is true. I guess we're also familiar with the idea of repentance of turning around or turning back, changing direction and the direction we've been going in as Australians but more globally is the wrong direction and we need to change that. So that's part of what we're also on about and uh, maybe we can start, start by thinking about what are some of the first steps in changing direction. You've already outlined mm -hmm. some of them but for the people here. I guess thirdly and just a, um, there's some hope in this I hope for you or some encouragement uh, the most famous story around repentance, I guess, is the one Jesus told about the prodigal son. And in the telling of that story where the prodigal repents and decides to go back to the father's house, it's actually based on an Aramaic phrase that described him as coming back to himself or returning to himself. Mm. Mm. Repentance yeah. is actually how you become truly human. It's how you become truly Christian and so this is not just for the benefit of Aboriginal people or black people or colour people. This is how we become who we were made to be. Mm -hmm. It's through repentance that we become, we come back to ourselves in the image of God. And so that for me is an encouragement to, yes, it's a hard journey. And some of you here, I look around the room, have been on this journey for a long time. Thank you on behalf of us for walking that journey. Others are just beginning and we might start with what are some of the ways people can walk into this difficult but essential journey of repentance? Mm. Um, and then uh, some of us may have been walking the journey for a while and become discouraged or disillusioned. And so maybe we might also talk about how we find encouragement along the way, mm. um, some of the things that we might think about that help us. So, uh, but. Maybe you start with the first steps for someone who is hearing this call and think, okay, what do I do? You don't want to lug your talk, 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 talk. I won't <laughs> try and 
But we want to do more than talk, don't we? We want to actually <laughs> do justice. So what mm -hmm. are perhaps some of the first steps in this journey towards justice of sure. repenting? Yeah. Okay. So, I, I, so well the first thing that comes to mind is, is truth-telling. And while we have told truth here, one of the things that has struck me the most about when I talk with Australians about at the, the situation with Aboriginals in the country and Torres Strait Islander, South Sea Islander, there's literally a blank stare that, like a glaze that goes over the eyes and a sense of, in fact, I've heard, I've heard like not that long ago from other Australians, we don't have a race problem here. <laughs> Last night, <laughs> actually, mm -hmm. I was in Wollongong and I was um, speaking at another conference early that day and then last night over dinner I was talking with one of the one of the um, people at the conference and he said well I'm just having a really hard time wrapping my mind around like what you mean by race problem and I was like that's kind of funny because when I talk to aboriginals they don't have a problem like <laughs> you know what I mean they don't have an issue trying to find what we mean by that um, there's an issue here there's a problem here so I think part of the reason why there's that glazed look is because of the the amazing job that the, uh, the Australian government has done over the years of completely hiding the history. And the, the churches too. And the churches. Ani Jean, thank you so much. We have not met, but I'm really honored to meet you. <laughs> I am, I am, I really am. I'm like, I'm like fangirling over right here right now. But, um, <laughs> Yeah. I'll explain that later. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So, so, but no, but it's true, right? So I, I've been amazed at how little of the history is known, but it's, it shouldn't, I mean, Australia is not that far behind the United States. We, we also don't know our history. Um, but certain projects, like public history projects, the ability to put monuments in places yeah. that mark this territory where things happened, the ability to have truth commissions or truth-telling projects. These are ways that we can at least take the first steps because quite honestly, you won't get to the treaty or to the sovereignty without the truth first being told and known and rehearsed and accepted and repented, faced and repented of by the people. So, I mean, so a truth-telling project, I'm literally from here. On Monday, I'm going back to, to D.C., and on Thursday and Friday, I'll be in Richmond, Virginia, the cradle of the Confederacy, the former cradle of the Confederacy. And we're going to be doing a truth-telling project or mapping one out for them because the same thing has happened, a paving over of the history. That's part of the modus operandi of colonization when you don't want to change your great situation you've set up for yourself. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, I'll be emailing our Prime Minister and asking for you to go and meet with him oh. <laughs> to uh, <laughs> answer the calls of Aboriginal peoples for centuries who've asked for that truth-telling yeah. uh, and yeah. are still asking for that truth-telling. And I guess uh, uh, you can all put aside the night of January 26th uh, here in Sydney um, we're just starting to work on a, on a project that might actually be how we could do this and mm -hmm. inviting uh, Christians to come and be a part of that. It's only in its early days, but you can now exactly put aside January 26, 
If you follow us on Common Grace, um, we'll be sending out the, the invitations through there. Uh, so I've given you how many months' notice? A oh, lot of months' notice. A lot of months. Um, <laughs> uh, as well as marching on January 26th, come and march with the Aboriginal peoples or attend mm. uh, Survival Day events, uh, Invasion Day events here in Sydney. You've got heaps of events on, um, but make sure you keep that night aside and uh, we'll be in touch with you about what that looks like. Uh, and you know, in terms of race in Australia, you know, that's the biggest truth that has to be told. Uh, you know, you mentioned about how Aboriginal peoples have been categorised. Um, mm -hmm. These terms, half-caste, quarter-caste and even octoroon. Yeah. They were government policies uh, that removed us from our families uh, and tried to breed us out uh, through this process of assimilation. And that comes from actual government documents where they ticked a box as to what we are were called and how we were categorised. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we'll st we still have people say that those things to us today and that's why, you know, there's no percentage Aboriginal. You are Aboriginal. Yes. Um, and that's part of what Australia has to face up to, that um, a person with fair skin that looks like me with blue eyes is, you know, uh, Aboriginal. We've got this veil of invisibility uh, uh, over Aboriginal peoples. And I say it's a spiritual blindness and deafness that covers this land. Mm. Uh, and so we have to remove that veil. Mm. Truth-telling is a huge part of lifting that veil. Mm. Uh, and there's all different types of racism. It was Uncle Jack Charles, uh, Aboriginal actor, who said, Aboriginal people suffer a peculiar type of racism. And if you don't know that, I don't know why you don't know that. Uh, and mm. our skin colour can go in one generation. It can be gone. My uncle, my full-blooded uncle, has dark skin. Uh, it's just the way it turns out. Uh, but we come together in community. We know who each other are, um, and we try to love each other in our community. Uh, but we're always facing these questions of identity coming from non-Aboriginal peoples at us. Uh, and so, and the different types of racism. Uh, if I walk into a shop, I'm not going to be followed. Uh, but potentially, if Larissa and Arnie Jean, and has actually happened, walk into a shop, uh, the security guards come straight away and can be following them around, can, can search them for shoplifting. Uh, whereas me, it's like when I walked into that theological college and he didn't realise I was Aboriginal, and so I hear his true heart and his true mind. Um, there's no filter. Uh, and these are the types of racism Australia needs to, to face up to. And to have those conversations um, with your own friends and family about what racism is in Australia. So that the, the man that talked to Lisa, that we don't have to come into contact with him and, uh, you know, each one of those is a scar that you carry with you for, for your whole life. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, thank you. I'm just keeping an eye on the time, so I want to throw it open to Nick. We might just see if I Jean, would you like to say something just yet? I'm going to ask for questions, but Brooke's suggesting if you want to have, have a... Have, if you've got something you want to say, or maybe at the end, what would you like to do? What we talk I thank you both for your presentation. I'm one of the leading Aboriginal Christians in this country, and I'm saying that because a lot of people don't want to accept that even the churches, we're not intelligent, really. Um, when the uh, Bible College said that to Brooke, I said to Brooke, well, why didn't you tell them we've got over 100 doctors, 100 lawyers, 100 teachers in this country? 
Last year, one of my cousin's grandson became the first Queen's Council. He lives not very far from Tony Abbott. Mm. But who knows that mm. in, in this country? And he's the first one and he's the only one. Mm. The Queen's Council, lovely young man, even though I say it myself. But the fact is that um, I create all my own meetings because I'm not allowed to speak in a lot of these churches or they don't have me. So that I'm not gonna wait around for them to invite me. But the fact is that one of my journeys, one of my themes is that Australia's gotta deal with the history of this country. Your history is our history, our history is your history. We've yes. never dealt with it. We're not talking about it. And the only way that that history can be dealt with is through the cross, no other way. I mean, I live and work in the Brisbane, and I'll close here, but many, uh, well, there are many Christians, and they say, well, you're the first Aboriginal person I met, and they expect me to be excited. I feel insulted. Mm. Uh, I'm not the only Aboriginal person around here. The treatment of Aboriginal ministry in this country is shocking. Yeah. It's absolutely, and I know, because of, and one of the things that upsets me that all of our pastors who fought for justice in this city and in this country, they're no longer with us. Mm. They're no longer with us. Like the Uncle Cecil Grants, Pastor David Kirk, Pastor Don Brady, and even now we've got Aboriginal people, Christians, but we're involved in ministry, don't want to have anything to do with the church. And our very denomination, <coughs> because they've been hurt mm. by the church. Their children are hurt by the church. Many of these kids are in prisons. So there's a lot that we've got to deal with about history. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful on my left, I've got friends here that I've known for a number of years and I'm staying at their place. Mm. And for you, Jeff, for putting this on tonight and those of you. But we need more conversations like this. And this afternoon, um, Brooke and Scott and I was at a radio program and I think the fellow was shocked with some of the things that we were telling him. Mm. It's awful in this country, but the only way it can be solved is through the cross. Yeah. And the church is listening to us yeah. and talking with us. So I create my own meetings and I don't wanna boast, but I'm probably getting more young non-Aboriginal people coming to my events in this country than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I haven't got any money. I've never been on a wage. Mm -hmm. I've slept on floors because churches won't give you accommodation. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the only Aboriginal. Even before Brookiness, there have been other Aboriginal people who've gone before us. They're still alive. They got nothing. They've got nothing. And I run a dinner every year, and it raises money because I'm forever sending money to the many of our Aboriginal ministries around the country because the churches have failed to support them. The Baptists, the Anglicans, the Uniting Church, Salvation Army, they're the ones that get all black money in this country, but they're not meeting the needs. We've got some of the worst health problems. But I better stop there because I can preach all night about <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Aunty Jean. Thank you. And so one of the things, and it might seem, hosting a conversation, so Northside Baptist, doing, we're doing it. That's something that maybe a group of you together in your church and whatever the governance structure is, whether it's the pastor or the church council say, at some point we'd like to have a conversation. We know people we could invite. Mm -hmm. um, Brooke, Arnie, Jean, Larissa, there are plenty here. Scott through Common Grace can probably find someone to come and have this kind of conversation. 
in your church as part of that truth-telling. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have some questions. Um, so we'll be on Stephen O'Doherty's program on Hope FM on uh, Sunday night, 8 p.m., open house mm. program. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the interview, I got quite emotional because we thanked him and I got emotional and I said, um, you have to understand where that thank you comes from because we don't get these opportunities to speak on the radio. Uh, and I think he was um, quite shocked at that. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the same happens in churches if I get an invitation to speak in a church um, because, you know, uh, churches say no. Um, yeah. Mm. So, opportunity for some questions. I'll bring the microphone around because there is live streaming and recording. Um, got time for a few questions. Sure. Hi. Um, Lee. Lisa, you mentioned that you were um, at a conference, and I think that was that the Australian Christian Churches Community Engagement Conference. Possibly? I was at a conference, and I won't tell you which one. Right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think it was that uh, the denomination. Um, sure. It's the Hillsong denomination. I think that's what we all think of it as. And I was just wondering. I was really excited when I heard that you'd you'd been there. Somebody from church. It was awesome, church. actually. It was amazing. And. Yeah. I and it made me think, as you were talking, Brooke, um, ha- have Aboriginal Christian leaders been invited to that conference? I'm just, just wondering. To ACC? Yeah. To ACC? So, um, yeah. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean the one that, that just happened? Yeah. Were they there? Presumably no. They, they were not there. Yeah. So the, the ACC do have an Indigenous initiative, but I think the message is, um, and you know, Lisa, probably her eyes start to get open to this stuff as she gets invited into these conferences that, uh, and it's the same for all of us as you know the Christian conferences that take place in this country and that you attend. If you look at the list of speakers uh, and there's no Aboriginal speakers, then can you ring them up and say, where are your Aboriginal speakers? And not Mm -hmm. even just one speaker. Some of them have started having one speaker, but where are the two and three and four? Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. there should be no non-Aboriginal person leading a session in any of these Christian conferences about Aboriginal peoples or issues uh, without an Aboriginal person standing beside them or don't do it at all. So if you're seeing that, then call it out. That's part of what needs to be called out in Australia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other questions? I was in state schools for 35 years as a teacher and um, um, a lot of our programs and things had these token little things that where you always had to put some something about Aboriginal um, stuff into your, each program, each theme, each... And it was, you know, it was ridiculous because it didn't address the big picture. So it was sort of stuff shoved in because you had to shove it in somewhere. And... Um, it became a bit of a, um, a negative thing for the kids when you had to kind of force it into something when it just didn't fit where it was, you know, like maths or something and you had to sort of, you know, put something in there. Um, and I, I was just sitting here thinking, wouldn't it be fantastic if every state school um, had the message that 
um, from an Aboriginal person presented even once in every child's education, something even as powerful as tonight, mm. um, that would mean more, I think, to most students mm. than having little bits pushed in um, mm. by um, non-Indigenous people into syllabuses all over the place. Mm. Um, yep. Yeah, I'm not quite sure if we can get funding or something for that to happen, but to me that would be something fantastic to happen. Yeah, um, so I guess um, it follows on from where Lisa uh, took us, that the funding is there, it's about the redistribution that the importance is placed on these things. And, you know, there's teachers all over the country that have said similar things. And Aboriginal people need employment. We can teach these things from real life experience um, and particularly using, uh, you know, the leaders and elders um, who are still with us. It's a miracle Aunty Jean is still with us. She's a living miracle. Um, you know, Larissa's dad, Uncle Ray Minicon, is a leading theologian uh, and we need to use him too. And so employing Aboriginal peoples to be in our schools, and the money's all there, it's just got to be redistributed. How do we place importance on telling our history? And starting in the schools is, is really important. You know, I would add to that just very quickly that when, if, if, the, if the people at the center of the question um, who are asking the question and also who will be served by the answer to the question are white, then it becomes a question of whether or not there's enough representation in, you know, in, in your school play or in whatever you're doing. Uh, do you have that, that one Aboriginal voice or whatever to satisfy us to not be guilty anymore, right? To take the guilt off, we're gonna, we're gonna add that one voice to feel not guilty anymore. But if the, if the centering, if, if instead of centering the white voice of concern or need, if the center of the question is repairing what was broken, if the center is what is needed to repair what was broken, then quite honestly, honestly, you probably start a whole new cu curriculum altogether. I mean, it wouldn't even be the same at all. And, and the people who would craft the curriculum would actually be majority uh, Aboriginal. Like they would be the ones to craft the curriculum itself. So the question of representation would be answered through that process. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a piecemeal process as you're talking about. The question is who is centered? What is centered in the question? Is it the alleviation of guilt or is it the repair of what was broken? And so that'll be agenda item two on Lisa's uh, <laughs> meeting with the <laughs> Prime Minister. Oh and, and I do that as a joke, but I'm going to call you to action. We've called you to action. Each one of you has the power, um, and Arnie Jean calls people all the time, to write a letter to your state MPs, to your federal MPs about these things, and to write a letter to your heads of churches. Um, and if your pastor won't listen, write a letter to the pastor and the church council, or right. however it's, it's made up, uh, because this is part of truth-telling. come alive now. <laughs> and we're almost out of time, so we'll try and have a quick response on Smog and Thursday. We'll try. I'll, I'll keep it quick, and, and I think the answer hopefully <laughs> should be quick as well. Um, I'm from New Zealand. I wasn't educated in Australia. Mm. Um, but a few of the comments you mentioned around the lack of awareness 
of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders story in Australia um, struck a chord. New Zealand has had similar issues in the past. However, um, we have come a long way in terms of rep reparations and education. For instance, I had to learn, uh, everyone had to learn Māori language in uh, primary school. Um, we learned about the uh, Treaty of Waitangi. Um, I studied law in New Zealand. We had to learn, learn about how Mount the Māori people actually uh, thought about land in a different way to what mm -hmm. Europeans did and what that meant for the legal ramifications. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not perfect, but the education, uh, the mandatory education, I, that I probably didn't really appreciate as much at the right. time, but really do now, mm -hmm. um, had an enormous amount of value. And I think when I turn up here and I hear you speak about the lack of awareness, I find it quite shocking that people just don't know a lot of the massacres or the stolen wages or a lot of these massive issues that could drive a real call to action. And so I'm wondering, can you outline for me just really quickly, what is the level of education in Australia mm. in, in primary school or secondary school university about Aboriginal culture, yep. Aboriginal massacres and other issues in the community? Because yep. I just don't mm. know. Yeah, so it was only uh, four years ago that they started to look at the national curriculum and they came up with this thing, I think, Indigenous perspectives in the curriculum. Uh, but not all teachers have been trained. They don't know how to teach the <coughs> national curriculum. And this, there's this uh, political fight about a black armband view of our history. Uh, and that's where, you know, non-Aboriginal people continue to deny what happened to us, but we're living stories um, through real life and passed down through our families. So, mm. you know, uh, that sort of conversation needs to stop so that we can tell the truth, but training our teachers is really important as well. Uh, and so, you know, New Zealand's journey has really been in the last 30 years. It wasn't until I went to New Zealand that I realised that I thought you had all these things because you had a treaty, um, and the Treaty of Waitangi, and we still don't have any treaty or treaties. Uh, and I didn't realise it was the last 30 years where, you know, obviously you had a movement of people who um, helped to change. So I guess that's part of the hope for Australia, that we can look across to our neighbour, New Zealand, and maybe learn. Um, and you're right, New Zealand still has a long way to go. I thought I read just today that um, they were debating whether it should be compulsory for Māori language to be taught in schools. It's not actually compulsory. And they're having a big fight about it shouldn't be compulsory. And I went, that sort of broke my heart a bit. Mm. So, um, you know, we constantly have to be vigilant about these things. Mm. Mm. And so it'll take those children until they become teachers that maybe we'll actually start to see change. So if we keep looking to the education system, you've got at least a 30 year wait. Uh, and that's, I guess, where Annie Jean is calling us to the cross and Lisa and I that, you know, mm -hmm. how do we come together as Christians um, to try and bring hope and healing? Teachers to our community, they're, they're on Sherberg. But I want to say tonight that many of those young, those teachers who came, they became Christians through our folks. Yeah. And um, wow. earlier this year, one of them rang me, one of those teachers, and she was telling the folks in her church where she was baptized. And in the area where we live, it's called Baramba Creek. And they said, but that's where all the Aborigines live. Well, she said, that's where I was baptized. You was baptized? Yeah, because it was the Aboriginal church, the AIM, that 
and the Aboriginal people there that led me to the Lord. She ended up at Tali Bible College, served overseas for many, many years. And to me, one of the greatest Christians in this country who still fights for Aboriginal people um, in, uh, in, in the school system. But there was a group of those Christians and members of our family and my cousins were the ones that led them to the Lord. Mm. And they're fine Christian people today. Mm. Amen. Um, thanks so much to everyone who's been speaking tonight. I guess my question is, if you have a singular book or podcast or resource or something that you would encourage for mm. deeper learning or, as, as Jeff's mentioned, as a resource for getting together and actually talking about these issues, what would be like mm. one or two recommendations for a starting place? Mm. So in terms of the Australian historical context, so I'm telling everyone around the country to make sure you've read Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe. Uh, and it's an amazing book that tells the true history that says, overturns that lie that we were nomadic hunter-gatherers, that we had houses, we sewed clothes, um, we had farming practices, uh, and talks about the, the spirituality as well, I found fascinating, and Christianity and colonisation is part of that as well, so it's a fantastic resource to look at. If you're looking at a DVD series or an online series, First Australians by SBS to tell you the true history of Australia, um, and uh, that's free online. Uh, and on Common Grace, um, we'll be revamping it soon, but there's a resources page, and it's got some of the political things as well as Christian things on there, because um, uh, I needed a place where I could direct people to, and Common Grace were the only ones that came to the table um, and said, yep, mm -hmm. let's do this, so um, check that out as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Once a raid, once a raid falls, mm -hmm. so they're leaving for your livelihood. If we leave those two men tomorrow, you've got no one left in this country. You've got the young ones, but the young ones are eating their eating, waiting on our stories. But once a raid and once a grain and once a grain is not going to leave, you've got 30 Baptist men in the country. So, so one of his feet and listening. That's right. Mm -hmm. One of his, um, it was foundational in my theological um, journey, uh, Uncle Reverend Graham Paulson uh, with Mark Brett, um, the paper Five Smooth Stones, and I think you can get that on the Common Grace um, website, but you can mm. just Google it, Five Smooth Stones. Um, and Uncle Ray, for me, uh, it's still available as a podcast um, online uh, through Surrender Melbourne. Uh, and if you Google, uh, does Jesus believe in land rights? And he did a Bible study mm. series. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's right. I forget yeah. I'm in Sydney, right? <laughs> so Uncle Ray's just there at Glebe that's at right. the Anglican Church at Scar Tree Ministries as well. Mm -hmm. I especially if you're overseas. <coughs> yeah. There's a couple of these up there. Especially if you're overseas, this little book, The Little Red Yellow Black Book, an introduction to Indigenous Australia, that's uh, uh, not a bad resource to just, mm. especially if you haven't grown up here and you want to find out a little bit more. So there's a couple then. Okay, that's last great. question, then we're going to wrap. I want to just oh, add, I just want to add some um, theological resources. Yes. I mean, in addition to going to Scar Tree, which you said is the, is the only Indigenous ministry here in Sydney, so that's really significant, and especially to do... And there's, okay, and there's one outside. So, Mount Druitt too. So, 
So thank you. So I, I would also just add um, the there's a book called Forgive Us that was written by two theologians and two historians. I was one of the theologians. And it actually traces seven sins of the church against the world. And one of those sins, and it's actually looking particularly at the American context, but one of those sins is the sins against the indigenous people. And it models what it looks like to tell the truth and then also move through a process of, um, of spiritual formation of forgiveness and repentance. Um, so, and it helps you to take your congregation through that as well. So um, that's one. And then, of course, the very good gospel. It just lays a theological foundation for the vision of, of shalom. And uh, in Australia, Reverend Dr. Peter Adams' work. So he's one of the um, hmm. few theologians um, that actually said, the sin of this nation is the theft of the land. And he's former hmm. principal of Ridley College. Um, so you can find his work online as well, Dr. Peter Adams. That's great. Yeah, if I can just make a comment around um, the educational perspective, which you spoke about in terms of it being implemented some like four years ago or something like that. I teach in the public system and I think it's very telling that because we have a lack of truth telling, the approach of teachers towards the actual implementation incorporation of indigenous pers perspective is taken very lightly and not very seriously. Mm. So without the veracity of storytelling, truth-telling, and everybody imbibing in the history, the true history of this country, those perspectives which have been put forward to be taught will never really be taken seriously. And yes, Jesus does believe in land rights. Acts 17, uh, what is it, 26? That's good. And he is made from one blood, every nation of men, to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Amen. 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 And the book One Blood by John Harris is also a great resource, just to draw that link. That's okay, great. I want to thank you, Trudy, and I guess that uh, um, is a bit of a South African theme. Uh, we've also wa wanted to sort of keep pushing on towards this idea of forgiveness, reconciliation. I guess the world stopped when Mandela came out of jail and uh, one of his first things was to forgive the jailer. Uh, that was a significant moment. And uh, I want to say that the, the friendship, the patience, the forgiveness of Aboriginal Christian friends like Larissa's dad, mm. Ray Minikin, Arnie Jean, Brooke and others mm. is what keeps encouraging me. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, John Kavanagh in Central Australia. I've always found they are more willing to forgive than I am to repent. And that says something, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. And so, if you want to experience this journey, as I hope you are encouraged to tonight, know that in this room and across this country, there are many people like Ray, Rani Jean, and Brooke, Larissa, am I missing? <laughs> who are willing to go on the journey with you, to hold your hand, to be patient with you, to love you. Slap up. <laughs> friendship's all about that. Marissa's saying sometimes slap you for those on Facebook. There you go. I've been yeah. slapped about, that's for sure, but it's done me good. So in that spirit, let me pray to the God who is a God of truth, a God of justice, and a God of forgiveness.
God, we need all of those things in this land. We thank you for those who have gone before us, for Graham Poulson and Ray Minikin and those who have led the way for Aboriginal Christians and for those who are coming along. Um, thank you for those in this room, for Annie Jean, for Larissa, for Brooke tonight. We thank you for sending us Lisa to help us understand more of who we are but also who we might become. Mm. Mm. We pray we will know that we don't journey alone and we pray that we might rely on the cross of Jesus where we can know the truth about ourselves and our history but also find forgiveness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Um, I'd like to do just one more thing. Um, I'm going to get us all to stand up. Uh, <laughs> and Annie Dean, you don't have to if you don't want to. I ask people to hold hands. So this is a blessing for everyone, uh, but I especially give it uh, as a way as you continue to walk softly and gently on our lands, Lisa, Sharon, Harper. Um, a blessing to you, who I've given to your friend Ruth Padella de Borst as well when she visited uh, Melbourne and Australia. And as we embark on this journey where we take the actions of walking together, um, as we take uh, those steps into truth telling, uh, into justice, uh, into healing for our land, um, this is an Aboriginal blessing uh, in the words of Aunty Betty Pike. May you always stand as tall as a tree. Be as strong as the rock Uluru, as gentle and still as the morning mist. Hold the warmth of the campfire in your heart. And may the Creator Spirit, Lord God, Papa Jesus, always walk with you and walk with us. Amen.